Welcome to another episode of the Sonic Sketchbooks podcast. I'm your host, Gary Warner. A couple of episodes back, I mentioned the writing of John Berger and how I'd been rereading a large volume of his selected writings. That rereading prompted me to search my bookshelves for another of his many books, this one, published in hardback in 2011 by Pantheon Books New York, is titled Bento's Sketchbook, How Does the Impulse to Draw Something Begin? It's a thoughtfully produced 160 pages of musings, anecdotes and philosophical inquiry about the nature of art and includes numerous reproductions of Burge's characteristic exploratory and evocative drawings punctuated with quotes from 17th century Dutch philosopher, writer, outcast and lens grinder Benedict Spinoza, the bento of the title. The book is episodic, diaristic, provocative and inspiring. At home alone on a rainy morning, I decided to read a few pages out loud. The book fell open to a story John Berger narrates about a chance encounter arising from his everyday life as a senior citizen living in Paris in 2010. He was born in 1926. Among other things, it's an illustration of how art can work before, beyond and completely outside of commerce, fame, spectacle or isms to create meaning in life, to connect people. As I read the story out loud, I was surprised by the strong affect his writing conjured in me and as I'd read the story before, it had that air of vague familiarity that allows one to better appreciate the craft of the writer, an almost haptic appreciation of the essay's structure. For me, this short piece is emblematic not only of Burgess' style and brilliance as a lifelong writer, but of, as I imagine it, his emotional being, his inner crucible of empathy, insight, anger at injustice, and his complete inhabitants of life. So this episode is simply my reading of those few pages from Bento's sketchbook on another rainy day here in Redfern, Sydney, on Gadigal Country. I want to tell you the story of how I gave away a show Japanese brush, where it happened and how. The brush had been given to me by an actor friend who had gone to work for a while with some no performers in Japan. I drew often with it. It was made of the hairs of horse and sheep. These hairs once grew out of a skin. Maybe this is why when gathered together into a brush with a bamboo handle, they transmit sensations so vividly. When I drew with it, I had the impression that it and my fingers loosely touching it were touching not paper, but a skin. The notion that a paper being drawn on is like a skin is there in the very word, brush stroke. The one and only touch of the brush as the great draftsman Chidao termed it. The setting for the story was a municipal swimming pool in a popular though not chic Paris suburb where from time to time I was something of an habitué. I went there every day at 1pm when most people were eating and so the pool was less crowded. 
The building is long and squat and its walls are of glass and brick. It was built in the late 1960s and it opened in 1971. It's situated in a small park where there are a few silver birches and weeping willows. From the pool when swimming you can see the willows high up through the glass walls. The ceiling above the pool is panelled and now, 40 years later, several of the panels are missing. How many times when swimming on my back have I noticed this, whilst being aware of the water holding up both me and whatever story I'm puzzling over? There's an 18th century drawing by Huang Shen of a cicada singing on the branch of a weeping willow. Each leaf in it is a single brushstroke. Seen from the outside, it's an urban, not a rural building. And if you didn't know it was a swimming pool and you forgot about the trees, you might suppose it was some kind of railway building, a cleaning shed for coaches, a loading bay. There's nothing written above the entrance, just a small blazon containing the three colours of the tricolour emblem of the Republic. The entrance doors are of glass with the instruction Pousse stenciled on them. When you push one of these doors open and step inside, you are in another realm which has little to do with the streets outside, the parked cars or the shopping street. The air smells slightly of chlorine. Everything is lit from below rather than from above as a consequence of the light reflected off the water of the two pools. The acoustics are distinct. Every sound has its slight echo. Everywhere the horizontal, as distinct from the vertical, dominates. Most people are swimming, swimming from one end of the large pool to the other, length after length. Those standing have just taken off their clothes or are getting out of them, so there's little sense of rank or hierarchy. Instead, everywhere, there's this sense of an odd horizontal equality. There are many printed notices, all of them employing a distinctive bureaucratic syntax and vocabulary. The hairdryer will be shut off five minutes before closing time. Bathing caps obligatory, council decree, as from Monday, September 12th, 1980. Entry through this door forbidden to any person who is not a member of staff. Thank you. The voice embodied in such announcements is inseparable from the long political struggle during the Third Republic for the recognition of citizens' rights and duties. A measured, impersonal committee voice, with somewhere in the distance a child laughing. Around 1950, Fernand Leger painted a series of canvases called plongeurs, divers in a swimming pool. With their primary colours and their relaxed, simple outlines, these paintings celebrated the dream and the plan of workers enjoying leisure and because they were workers, transforming leisure time into something which had not yet been named. Today the realisation of this dream is further away than ever. Yet sometimes whilst putting my clothes in a locker in the men's changing room and attaching the key to my wrist and taking the obligatory hot shower before walking through the footpath and going to the edge of the large pool and diving in, I remember these paintings. 
Most of the swimmers wear, as well as the obligatory bathing caps, dark goggles to protect their eyes from the chlorine. There's little eye contact between us, and if a swimmer's foot accidentally touches another swimmer, he or she immediately apologises. The atmosphere is not that of the Côte d'Azur. Here, each one privately pursues her or his own target. I first noticed her because she swam differently. The movements of her arms and legs were curiously slow, like those of a frog, and at the same time her speed was not dramatically reduced. She had a different relationship to the element of water. The Chinese master Chi Ba Shi, 1863-1957, loved drawing frogs and he made the tops of their heads very black as if they were wearing bathing caps. In the Far East, the frog is a symbol of freedom. Her bathing cap was ginger-coloured and she was wearing a costume with a floral pattern a little like English chintz. She was in her late fifties and I assumed was Vietnamese. Later I discovered my mistake. She is Cambodian. Every day she swam, length after length, for almost an hour as I did too. When she decided it was time to climb up one of the corner ladders and leave the pool, a man, who was himself swimming several tracks away, came to help her. He was also Southeast Asian, a little thinner than her, a little shorter, with a face that was more carved than hers. Her face was moonlike. He came up behind her in the water and put his hands under her ass so that she, facing the edge of the pool, sat on them and he bore a little of her weight when they climbed out together. Once on the solid floor, she walked away from the corner of the pool towards the foot bath and the entrance to the women's changing room, alone and without any discernible limp. Having noticed this ritual a number of times, I could see, however, that when walking, her body was taut as if stretched on tenterhooks. The man with the brave, carved face was presumably her husband. I don't know why I had a slight doubt about this. Was it his deference or her aloofness? When she first came into the pool and wanted to enter the water, he would climb halfway down the ladder and she would sit on one of his shoulders and then he would prudently descend until the water was over his hips and she could launch herself to swim away. Both of them knew these rituals of immersion and extraction by heart and perhaps both recognised that in the ritual the water played a more important role than either of them. This might explain why they appeared more like fellow performers than man and wife. Time went by. The days passed repetitively. Eventually, when she and I, swimming our lengths, crossed one another going in opposite directions for the first time on that day, with only a metre or two between us, we lifted our heads and nodded at one another. And when, about to leave the pool, we crossed for the last time that day, we signalled au revoir. How to describe that particular signal? It involves raising the eyebrows, tossing the head as if to throw back the hair, and then screwing up the eyes in a smile very discreetly, goggles pushed back up onto the bathing cap.
One day, whilst I was taking a hot shower after my swim, there are eight showers for men, and to switch one on, there are no taps. You press an old-fashioned button like a doorknob, and the trick is that amongst the eight, there's some variation in the duration of the flow of hot water until the button has to be pressed again, so by now I knew exactly which shower had the hot jet that lasted longest, and if it was free, I always chose it. One day, whilst I was taking a hot shower after my swim, the man from Southeast Asia came under the shower next to mine, and we shook hands. Afterwards, we exchanged a few words and agreed to meet outside in the little park after we dressed. And this is what we did, and his wife joined us. It was then I learned they were from Cambodia. She is very distantly related to the family of the famous king and then Prince Sihanouk. She had fled to Europe when she was 20 in the mid-1970s. Prior to that, she had studied art in Phnom Penh. It was she who talked and I who asked the questions. Again, I had the impression that his role was that of a bodyguard or assistant. We were standing near the birch trees beside their parked two-seater Citroen C15, with a seatless space behind. A vehicle much the worse for wear. Do you still paint? I asked. She lifted her left hand into the air, making a gesture of releasing a bird, and nodded. Often she's in pain, he said. I read a lot too, she added. In Khmer and in Chinese. Then he indicated it was perhaps time for them to climb into their C-15. I noticed, hanging from the rear-view mirror above the windscreen, a tiny Buddhist Dharma wheel, like a ship's helm in miniature. After they had driven off, I lay on the grass. It was the month of May, beneath the weeping willows, and found myself thinking about pain. She'd left Cambodia, still then Kampuchea, in the year when Sihanouk had been ousted with the probable help of the CIA, and when the Khmer Rouge under Pol Pot had taken over the capital and were beginning the enforced deportation of its two million inhabitants to the countryside, where living in communities with no individual property, they had to learn to become new Khmers. A million of them didn't survive. In the preceding years, Phnom Penh and its surrounding villages had been systematically bombarded by USA B-52 bombers. At least 100,000 people died. The Kampuchean people, with their mighty past of Angkor Wat and its massive, painless stone statues, which later were cracked open and marauded by something which has come to look today like suffering, the Kampuchean people were, at the moment she left her country, surrounded by enemies, Vietnamese, Laotians, Thais, and were on the point of being tyrannised and massacred by their own political visionaries who transformed themselves into fanatics so that they could inflict vengeance on reality itself, so they could reduce reality to a single dimension. Such reduction brings with it as many pains as there are cells in a heart. Gazing at the willows, I watched their leaves trailing in the wind, each leaf a small brushstroke. I found it impossible to separate the pain to which her body was apparently heir from the pain of her country's history during the last half century. 
Today, Cambodia is the poorest country in Southeast Asia and 90% of its exports are manufactured in sweatshops producing pieces of garments for the brand name Rag Trade Multinationals of the West. A group of four-year-old kids ran past me up the steps and through the glass doors going to their swimming lessons. The next time I saw her and her husband in the pool I approached her when she had finished one of her lengths and asked if she could tell me what it was that caused her pain. She answered immediately as if naming a place. Polyarthritis. It came when I was young, when I knew I had to leave. It's kind of you to ask. The left half of her forehead is a little discoloured, browner than the rest, as if the leaf of a frond once placed on her skin there had slightly stained it. When her head is thrown back floating on the water and her face looks moon-like, you could compare this little discolouring with one of the seas on the surface of the moon. We both trod water and she smiled. When I'm in water, she said, I weigh less and after a little while my joints stop hurting. I nodded. And then we went on swimming. Swimming on her front, as I've said, she moved her legs and arms as slowly as a frog sometimes does. On her back, she swam like an otter. Cambodia is a land with an unique osmotic relationship with fresh water. The Khmer word for homeland is Tuk Dai, which means water land. Framed by mountains, Cambodia's flat, horizontal, alluvial plain, about a fifth of the size of France, is crossed by six rivers, including the vast Mekong. During and after the summer monsoon rains, the flow of this river multiplies by 50, and in Phnom Penh, at the head of its delta, the river's level rises systematically by 8 metres. At the same time, to the north, the lake of Tonle Sap overflows each summer to four times its normal winter size to become an immense reservoir and the river of Tonle Sap turns around to run in the opposite direction, its downstream becoming upstream. Small wonder then that this plain offered the most varied and abundant freshwater fishing in the world and that for centuries its peasants lived off rice and the fish of these waters. It was on that day whilst swimming during the lunch hour at the municipal swimming pool after she had said the word polyarthritis, pronouncing it as if it were a place, that I thought of giving her my show brush. The same evening I put it into a box and wrapped it and each time I went to the pool I took it with me until they turned up again. Then I placed the little box on one of the benches behind the diving boards and told her husband so he could pick it up when they left. I left before they did. Months passed without my seeing them because I was elsewhere. When I returned to the pool I looked for them and could not see them. I adjusted my goggles and dived in. Several kids were jumping in feet first, holding their noses. Others on the edge were adjusting flippers to their feet. It was noisier and more animated than usual because by now it was the month of July. School was over and the kids whose families couldn't afford to leave Paris were coming to play for hours in the water. The special entrance fee for them was minimal and the life-saving swimming instructors maintained an easy-going discipline.
A few regulars with their strict routines and personal targets were still there. I had done about 20 lengths and was about to start another when, to my astonishment, I felt a hand firmly placed from behind on my right shoulder. I turned my head and saw the stained moon face of the one-time art student from Phnom Penh. She was wearing the same ginger-coloured bathing cap and she was smiling a wide smile. You're here! She nods and whilst we are treading water she comes close and kisses me twice on both cheeks. Then she asks, bird or flower? Bird. Thereupon she lays her head back on the water and laughs. I wish I could let you hear her laugh. Compared to the splashing and cries of the kids around us, it is low-keyed, slow and persistent. Her face is more moonlike than ever, moonlike and timeless. The laugh of this woman, who will soon be sixty, continues. It is unaccountably the laugh of a child. That same child whom I imagined laughing somewhere behind the committee voices. A few days later, her husband swims towards me, asks after my health and whispers on the bench by the diving boards. Then they leave the pool. He comes up behind her, puts his hands under her ass, and she, facing the edge of the pool, sits on them, whilst he bears a little of her weight, and they climb up and out together. Neither of them wave back to me as they have on other occasions. A question of modesty, gestural modesty. No gift can be accompanied by a claim. On the bench is a large envelope which I take. Inside is a painting on rice paper. The painting of the bird I chose when she asked me what I wanted. The painting shows a bamboo and perched on one of its stems a blue tit. The bamboo is drawn according to all the rules of the art. A single brush stroke beginning at the top of the stalk stopping at each section, descending and becoming slightly wider. The branches narrow as matches, drawn with the tip of the brush. The dark leaves rendered in single strokes like darting fish. And lastly, the horizontal nodes brushed from left to right between each section of the hollow stalk. The bird, with its blue cap, its yellow breast, its greyish tail and its claws like the letter W, from which it can hang upside down when necessary, is depicted differently. Whereas the bamboo is liquid, the bird looks embroidered, its colours applied with a brush as pointed as a needle. Together on the surface of the rice paper, bamboo and bird have the elegance of a single image, with the discrete stencil of the artist's name stamped below and to the left of the bird. When you enter the drawing, however, and let its air touch the back of your head, you sense how this bird is homeless, inexplicably homeless. I framed the drawing like a scroll without a mount and with great pleasure chose a place to hang it. Then one day, many months later, I needed to look up something in one of the LaRousse illustrated encyclopedias and turning the pages, I happened to fall upon the little illustration it contained of a messange bleu, the blue tit. I was puzzled, it looked oddly familiar. Then I realised that in this standard encyclopedia I was looking at the model. The two W's of the blue tit's claws were, for instance, at precisely the same angle, as were also the head and beak, the exact model which she had taken for the bird perched on the bamboo. 
and again I understood a little more about homelessness. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about the fortnightly Sonic Sketchbooks podcast at the episode guide at sonicsketchbooks.net, a new episode every second Tuesday. This is episode 56.